Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to another week of Transporter Lock, the weekly Star Trek Discovery podcast. We're here to discuss episode 7 of the first season, that being magic to make the sanest man go mad. And by we, I mean me, Ken, and... Sabriel. Hi, Sabriel. How are you? I'm doing very well this week. How about yourself? I am doing fantastic. I had a great night on Sunday watching Star Trek. Oh, me too. What a coincidence. (laughs) But even better than usual, I was just grinning throughout the entire thing, and I wish I'd had somebody to share it with, but I do, and that person is you. Yeah, we should do a podcast together. What a great idea. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm so glad you thought of it. We're recording a little bit later this week, just due to personal recording schedules, but hopefully the show will still be airing when our listeners find it useful. Yeah, and next week we may be off again because both of us are traveling. And by off, we just mean off schedule, not off the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yes. But we are, of course, watching Star Trek Discovery every week, and let's get right into this week's show. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge for us to walk through this episode because there's so much redundancy, but I think we can do it. We should make sure to leave room at the end of the show to discuss overall. I think we sort of rushed the end last week, so let's make sure we have time to really digest the episode at the end. Sounds good to me. Great. Sounds good to me. All right. Sounds good to me. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. (laughs) All right. So, shall we begin? Yes. All right. Do you want to start? Sure. So, we open up with Michael Burnham giving a personal log. She is laying in bed and she's talking about there's a sense of routine on a ship. It sounds like this is, we don't, I don't know the exact timeline, but this is some time after the last episode. And we keep, we see a number of scenes kind of repeating as she's talking about routine. She's having food with her friend. She actually mentions her one friend, Tilly. And she discusses how Stamets has personality now. And she also mentions, which I think this is, a great part, she mentions having interest in some of the crew. And then the camera cuts to Ash Tyler. Oh, he is so dreamy. Apparently, because every woman is swooning over him. Mm-hmm. And she says, I find him intriguing. I thought it was interesting that Michael is giving a personal log. That is not something we saw in the previous four episodes when she was not a specialist. No, and I don't know if it was just we never saw that because we didn't need that exposition, or if this is like, hey, this is what's been going on in the last few days or weeks since we last talked. I like to think that since she was still considered a mutineer, she didn't have access to logs, but now that she is actually on the crew of Discovery, it's part of her routine. That is a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. I like that. I'm going to go with that. True or not? I mean, it's just a nice narrative device that bookends the episode. It's not something we'd seen yet in Discovery, so it also ties it into other Star Trek shows more neatly. Yeah. This is the first episode since Lorca officially added her to the crew, but she does not appear to have a comm badge. You know, none of them. Oh, no, she did not not have the insignia. They're not comm badges yet in this era. Oh, right. With the the little, uh, the shield, Delta shield. Um, But she did not have that yet, which is interesting. Apparently, you need to be a full-fledged officer, not just a specialist, to get one of those. And that's a distinction I have not encountered in other Star Treks between officer and specialist. No, no, but then, yeah, this, like TNG, DS9, they all had comm badges, but we didn't really see non-officers except for O'Brien. He's like one of the few people we never saw that. 
was not an officer. O'Brien was not an officer? No, he was an, an enlisted man. I know, right? I mean, he served in the war. He had pips and everything, didn't he? Yeah, but he was just enlisted. I think enlisted means that they didn't finish Starfleet Academy. They just joined Starfleet right off the bat. All right, so then there we go. And apparently that's what the equivalent here is. Interesting. I wasn't really aware of that distinction because O'Brien was so critical to the Enterprise and Deep Space Nine, and I thought, yeah, there is a rank among enlisted crew, So even though as opposed to commissioned officers. So I guess just the fact that he could be promoted, I thought meant that he was an officer. I never realized he wasn't. That's fascinating. And you know, when you bring that up, except for captain and first officer, rank, or maybe Ensign Wesley, Rank rarely was brought up among the main crew. It was just like a thing. You have Lieutenant Worf and Lieutenant Data. Yeah. Like we know what their ranks are, but they never, it rarely actually ever came up unless it was part of the plot point. So like, eh. (laughs) What was Deanna's rank? Uh, You know what? Maybe she was just a specialist as well. Fascinating. She did eventually start wearing the uniform and I believe she had a comm badge. Well, she did reach commander. Right. Exactly. That's right. She learned how to send Geordi to his death. (laughs) I still remember that episode. <laughs> like years later, like that one line. You need to be able to order someone to their death. No, not Jordy. But, he already has <laughs> such bad luck. I know. But we're still talking about Discovery. And something about this personal log, uh, she also talked, Michael Burnham talked about, uh, she's, she's concerned that being raised on Vulcan keeps her from being able to forge relationships. And she says in her own words, I am among the others, but I am apart. It's true. And so even though she has joined the ranks of the Discovery, she is still an outsider in many ways. She doesn't know how to integrate with a mostly human crew. And although we are seeing aliens we've never seen before on Star Trek, again, Starfleet is still predominantly human, seemingly. Yes. And as she's giving this, uh, as she's waking up and getting out of bed and giving this report, we see that she's walking somewhere. She basically, uh, you can see it in her face, is basically like, oh no, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. She opens the doors to, I think it's the mess hall, and there's a party going on. There's Ooh, a party! They're listening to some extreme retro music, the stuff that would, you would hear today. <laughs> yeah, what did, you, what did you think of the fact that Starfleet officers have parties? I love it. I was going to mention this at the end of the show, but I love seeing the people being people. In the background, like like, like uh, Enterprise and Discovery now, we see people living their lives. Where TNG, DS9, and Voyager, they all had it, but this feels more real. Because like, Enterprise, they're watching movies. Here, they're having a dance party, and they're all drinking out of plastic cups. <laughs> like, this is awesome. Now, see, I like seeing them as being people, but I don't like the exact manifestation it took in this episode. Because... I am extremely uncomfortable at parties like uh-huh. we saw in this episode. And I always felt like a Starfleet future or a spaceship is somewhere that I would be accepted, I'd be comfortable, I would be able to talk to other intelligent individuals. And here we see them playing beer pong, which is like the worst parts of my college experience. <laughs> oh, but here is also, you get to see Tilly, like letting loose. Yeah, was she drunk? I guess they don't have synthahol yet. We don't, yeah, but they don't, but then she's like letting loose and this is way different than any Tilly we've seen up until now. It's true. She's the one coaching Michael on social interactions. Yeah, which is, I thought was a great turnaround. But back to, I didn't want to uh, negate your point of the future in parties. You're like, well, hey, you can still have your phone in other ways too. This is just for some of the crew. Obviously there wasn't enough room for the entire crew to be here. So I wonder if it was by invitation only, and if so, I wonder who invited the mutineer. 
Tilly probably or Ash. That's true. Party's going on and everyone's bumping to the music. Tilly's playing beer pong and over in the corner we see Michael looking like a wallflower, looking very uncomfortable. <laughs> and she's standing there. All of a sudden the power kind of flickers. Music goes out and everyone's like, oh. Then all of a sudden it comes back on. Everyone's like, yay, party. And only Michael's concerned, which I thought was like, huh, that's going to be important. And it was. <laughs> so that's just kind of exposition. That's important. But we don't know why. Tilly's talking to Michael about what is she like in a man. And they're both look, eyeing up Ash Tyler, who's over talking to someone else. And they're all like, woo, woo, woo. And then all of a sudden, Ash starts walking over that way. And he tries to start a conversation with Tilly. And she's like, nope, I'm out of here, leaving Michael and Ash alone. Very subtle. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, just before they're about to talk, they are summoned to the bridge. He teases Michael Burnham, saying, you're saved from the horrors of small talk by duty. And she quickly catches up to him, and they continue to chat. And on their way to the bridge, they physically collide with Dr. Culber and Chief Engineer Stamets. Yeah, I love this, because Stamets is just like, oh, man, no, it's cool, it's cool, man. This means the universe is random, man. And he gives Burnham a hug, which I considered very unprofessional, because generally you don't touch a coworker without their permission. Oh, yeah. And even especially out of character for the stamens that we were initially introduced to. Yeah, I spoke last week on Transporter Lock about how I hoped this would not be a permanent change to Stamets' character. And over the course of this episode, we see that he's able to balance the two versions of himself. But generally, what we are seeing is that there has been a seemingly permanent change to his personality, which even the other characters remark on. And I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like it's too early in the show's arc to be making... It's such a dramatic change to a character. Uh, maybe it's a good thing, though, so we don't get used to the very jerk-face version of him. The jerk-face version, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a, like we said before, it's a trope in TV. The smart guy isn't jerk. Well, I'm reminded of John Larroquette's character, Dan Fielding, on Night Court, where he was a huge jerk for multiple seasons, and it made his transformation into a kinder, gentler character all the more impactful. Now, granted, by that point in the show's run, it had probably jumped the shark, but it's not something <laughs> that they did right in season one. Oh, man. Talking about something most people will not know when we're talking about. <laughs> well, if they grew up watching Star Trek like you and I did, they were probably watching Cheers and Night probably. Court as well. Yes. And, of course, yes. he was in Star Trek III's The Search for Spock as a Klingon. Yes, looking for Spock. So it is relevant. Yeah, he was there with Doc Brown. Christopher Lloyd was in that, too? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. He played Cruge, whereas John Larkett played Maltz. Sounds like drinks. Yeah, man, I could go for one. Actually, I do have one right now. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Not while we're podcasting, Bree. We've talked about this. <laughs> oh. So back to the scene, uh, they have this little confab or the accident running into each other. But it's important here because this is where Stamets shows Burnham. He's like, hey, look what I got. And he opens up, pulls up his arm, and he's got a cybernetic implant now to help him with the spore drive. So he can interface with the spore drive without being impaled by needles. Yeah. Definitely an improvement. So they depart from that little intersection, and Ash and Michael ride up to the bridge where they find themselves to be under yellow alert. Yeah, you're kind of surprised by my something noticing something here. Like, we have not seen yellow alert since season five of Deep Space Nine. Which, when you first pointed that out to me, seemed incredibly unlikely because as part of a just basic compliment that they would be able to do red alert 
yellow alert and in some cases like Voyager blue alert and Discovery black alert but why wouldn't they do yellow alert more often but you're right Voyager never once did yellow alert Enterprise never once did yellow alert <laughs> yeah Enterprise didn't, red alert didn't even exist either yeah read that, alert, read alert. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that was a very astute observation well done Thank you. When they arrive on the bridge, they find that the reason for the yellow alert and the reason they were called to the bridge is because a spacefaring creature known as a Gormagander has been detected. They weren't sure what it was, and once they realize what it is, Lorca says, oh, well then, cancel yellow alert. It's just a Gormagander. Yeah, yeah. And and we get this little uh, exposition of what it is from Michael Burnham, and she says, uh, this creature, it's like basically a huge space whale, as it was dubbed by other characters in the episode. Uh, saying it's basically it puts eating in its highest priority, even ignoring uh, mating. And Lorca makes this comment. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a depressing trait if I've ever heard one, basically. Well, not in all that uncommon a one, even among humans. No, I think it just looks into Lorca's personality. <laughs> yeah, so he wants to just move along and ignore it once he realizes what it is. But they realize that they can't because there's basically a... Endangered Species Act in the future, and this creature qualifies. So they need to beam it aboard and bring it to a local, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a zoo or a yeah, care facility. Yeah, a rescue, <laughs> Gorgamander rescue. Exactly, yeah. So they, this surprised me. They go down to one of their shuttle bays, and they have a transporter powerful enough to beam this entire space whale wholesale directly into their shuttle bay. Yeah, I was like, wow, what's... I mean, I guess industrial strength. Well, you're in a cargo bay or transporter, or excuse me, shuttle bay. I suppose you need some extra power. Right, and the Star Trek various technical manuals show that the cargo transporters do have higher capacity, but we've never seen any transporter transport any one object of this size before. So I'm trying to think, like, off the top of my head, I can't think of something, anything. Of it. I'm sure there's an example, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. You're just sure that I'm wrong. You just can't think of why. Yeah, yeah, I know you're wrong. No. Thanks, Bree. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so they, they beam it ab- What? Get over yourself. Uh, we're trying to do a show here. So they beam it aboard, and they are getting some odd readings, and the mouth of the Gormagander opens up, and like something out of Pacific Rim, out pops a spaceman. Oh my god, this bug spacesuit was amazing. And I'm pretty sure... Uh, it wasn't specified, but I'm pretty sure it's an Andorian spacesuit. Yeah, it looks like something that we'd see in a like an old, bad Japanese superhero movie. Yeah, my first thought was like a TOS alien. Or a Power Ranger? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, he starts shooting up the place. He even kills some people. Burnham, fortunately, is able to escape and alert the bridge that there is an intruder with shots fired and men down. We even see uh, one of the weapons he fires. He fires a few weapons. Almost one looks like Starfleet issue. Another one is obviously Klingon with the way it vaporized someone that we saw a few weeks ago. Yeah, one of his pistols leaves traces and the other one does not. Now, we both noticed a very important line Lorca had here when he realized that there are shots being fired on his own ship. Yeah, he wants he confirms the sorrow. He's making sure that uh, Michael Burnham is unharmed before he even checks on the crew in the ship. Right. He is very vested in her safety, as we observed last week when he told Ash Tyler, bring her home without a scratch or don't bring her home at all. And it was a very quick line. There was like two sentences and it wasn't brought up again. But it's there if you're looking for it. Yeah, it wasn't like Saru said, uh, we, the rest of us are fine too, Captain. Thanks for asking. <laughs> oh, that would be great. So, so Bugman spacesuit dude, Andorian spacesuit, he's uh, finally locked down in some 
corridor and he unmasks himself and it's Harry Mudd. What? Harry Mudd, who we just saw two episodes ago. Yeah. He's back. Back with a vengeance and he's pissed off. And apparently he has sunk to the level of being a murderer. Yeah. Uh, so Harry, I was thinking about this. Like Harry Mudd has this reputation of being uh, just like a general fan base of being this goofy guy who just messes with Kirk every now and then. But this guy is kind of a jerk. He's I'm toning down my language. He's uh he's a, he's an a hole. My goodness, Bree, this is a clean podcast. Know, we don't I have know. the explicit tag in iTunes. Come on. <laughs> By showing up in this episode, he has doubled his number of appearances throughout the course of Star Trek history. He was twice on TOS, and now he's twice on Discovery. Yeah, and once in animated series. Oh, come on. That's not canon. <laughs> not unless they mention it. And I don't think he has mentioned his appearance on TAS yet. No, because it happened after this. Silly. That's right. <laughs> That's like 12 years later. But here he he's uh, talking to the captain uh, via uh, video screen, and uh, he he says, "Now we know why he's here. He's going to find out what makes Discovery so special. Then he's going to sell it to the Klingons." And also, it's a personal vendetta because he accuses Lorca of robbing him of his dear, sweet Stella, the only woman he's ever loved. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, he's a man on a mission. He's gonna, and he also adds this weird line. We're like, "What?" It's like, "I'm going to kill you as many times as possible." Well, there's that. <laughs> I don't know how he can blame Lorca for Stella leaving him. Yeah. Even if Stella's departure or loss was the result of the war, that he can trace back to Burnham, not to Lorca. And well, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of a weird vengeance thing, like, but uh, it didn't add up to me at all. He says, I have all the data I need for the next time. I'll see you again soon or previously, at which point I started thinking, is he some sort of a time traveler? Yeah, I know. It's weird, huh? And then he pushes the trigger on him. And an explosion ensues. We don't know, necessarily know where it started, I think, but on the bridge, they're counting down the decks that it is exploding. The breach halls are on deck six, five, four, three. We can't contain it. And then the whole ship blows up. Yeah, it was weird to end an episode like that. Yeah, it didn't really leave me with a lot of closure. No, I thought like maybe we should fix something here, but no, it was just where it ended. Yep, so that's the end of Discovery. Thanks for watching it. Uh, you know, I'm glad that everybody tuned into Transporter Lock. That's it. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you later. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, where we're talking about Season 1, Episode 7 of Star Trek Discovery. Magic to make the sanest man go mad. We are Ken. And this is Abriel. Hi, Bree. How are you? Hi. I didn't we do this already? Uh, I'm not sh... No? no. No? Okay. I think we should talk about Discovery. Okay, yeah, let's just jump right into it. So we see Burnham at a party trying to live it up, and Tyler's given a speech, and once again, Tyler comes over to make small talk. The two of them get called up to the bridge, and this time in the hallway, the scene is repeating as before, but they make it all the way to the turbo lift. I was like waiting for the physical collision to happen, and it doesn't. Stamets and Culber are nowhere to be seen. Yeah, I think we were both probably doing the same thing, like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Because obviously they're repeating what just happened, except something's different. Right. And this time they make it to the turbo lift. We get to see them have parts of the conversation they didn't have before. But this time Stamets comes running up to them and he is very agitated. He's not carrying stuff. He's not chillax. He's not looking for hugs. He is on a mission and it is to tell Burnham and Tyler, we've been here before. I can't be the only person who recognizes this. Yeah, and they're kind of like, okay. And then his partner comes up basically. He's like, 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's uh, it's basically he's, like, he's a little high. <laughs> and both Tyler and Burnham are confused as they get on this turbo lift. And Stamets yells up to him, like, it all starts with the Gormander. And they're like, very like, what is this guy talking about? Right, because this is not ringing a bell for anybody. So they make it all the way up to the bridge. The scene proceeds as usual. And when Saru identifies the biological life form as a Gormagander, the red alert goes off in Tyler's and Burnham's heads. They are looking at each other. And when Saru recommends being made aboard, which previously Burnham had recommended, this time Burnham and Tyler are both like, belay that order. We strongly advise against this course of action. Yeah, and this time it started with Norco going like, uh, yeah, I don't want to get a court martial by not doing this because apparently space law this trumps war. <laughs> apparently, yeah, the Endangered Species Act, you know, it's sort of like the Omega Protocol. <laughs> apparently, and so he's like, nope, get this done. And so they go down. He's like, I, Ash is like, I suggest we bring a security detail. He's like, whatever, I don't care. Just do what you need to do to get this out of my hair. So they go down to the shuttle bay. We are expecting it to play out like it did before, and to the point that they beam the Gormagander on board it does but then no little spaceman pops out instead the ship starts to go into a black alert for a spore jump yeah and captain's like uh what's going on then they they think engineering doesn't respond to his hails yeah so burnham and tyler are told to get to engineering where the spore jump warp drive thing is kept and they go in there with phasers ready and they find harry mud and this is the first time ash tyler has seen him. Now, Ash Tyler and Captain Lorca, Gabriel Lorca, are the only ones who know Mud from their previous incarceration. And so when Tyler sees him, he says, how the hell did you get out of my prison? The one that we spent so many months in. Yeah, they have this little exposition. He, he, and Harry Mud just kind of ignores it, the question here. And he's just like, it just it's kind of like, shut up and just tell me how this thing works. Yeah, and there are tons of dead engineering personnel on the floor. I'm surprised that given that evidence of a hostile force that Burnham and Tyler were not quicker to shoot mud. Yeah. But when they finally do try, they encounter the force field. Right. And pew, pew. What's interesting here is now, when we last saw mud, he didn't know anything about Discovery. And all of a sudden, now he's like, some time must have passed because now he knows the spore drive exists. And he's sitting there trying to fiddle with it. Like, what in the world is this thing? So he know we, we've missed some time here. And the crew doesn't know that, but we do, as viewers. But it's also possible that not only has time passed between his escape from prison and here, but this is the second loop we have seen. We don't know that it is the second loop. Oh, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Mud has probably come aboard the Discovery multiple times and examined multiple sections to try to find what's unique. Finally, he's doubled across engineering and is now fiddling with the spores to try to figure out what goes where and why. As he's uh, having this little conversation and... He's talking to Burnham and Ash. All of a sudden, Stamets comes from behind and shoots him. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see Stamets wielding a phaser for once. I know, right? Oh, we forgot the whole time. Uh, the whole time, the computer's like, hey, the, the engines aren't critical here. <laughs> yeah, like critical failure of the spore drive in two minutes, in 30 seconds, in 10 seconds. Yeah. Stamets seems kind of defeated by all this. Like, yeah, he just shot mud, but he just says, as days go, this is a weird one. <laughs> and, he's, he, and he just explains to Burnham and Tyler, I've been through this multiple times, and I have not yet found a way that ends in a win for the home team. See you real soon. And he basically walks away from Burnham and Tyler as the ship is about to explode, and he doesn't do anything to stop it, which to no. Burnham and Tyler is very concerning. <laughs> for those few seconds they're alive. Right. 
And then the ship blows up and the episode's over. Yeah, it was weird and it didn't leave me much closure, but eh, a shorter episode sometimes is a better one. Yeah, what are you going to do? Can't wait till the next one. See you next week. See ya. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock for Season 1, Episode 7. Hi, Bree. Hi, Ken. Shall we get right into it? Let's do this. All right. So, Burnham and Tyler are at the party again, and this time Tyler asks if she wants to dance. <laughs> they get called to the bridge before they can get interrupted, and just as they are leaving, Stamets arrives at the party, the first time we've seen him at the party. Yeah, he's stumbling around. He's like, where's Burnham? Where's Burnham? And uh, a cool side shave. Uh, navigator. Or comms woman. She's like, she's gone? <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, he just missed her. And uh, we cut away. Uh, she's on the bridge with Ash Tyler. And just as they find the Gormagander. And uh, then we cut away. It's like getting faster each time. So they know the Gormagander's uh, out there. The, she's walking down to the shuttle bay to beam it aboard. And Stamet stops her. And basically fills her in on this everything that's going on. And she's like, sure, dude, whatever. And he starts repeating everything she's saying as if they've had this conversation before. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll listen to you. Yeah, this is the first time that Stamets finally has the opportunity to let somebody in on the secret. Somebody who he knows how to convince. If, perhaps with some doubts, at least he gets her to listen. So finally, he's recruiting people and he's not acting alone anymore. Yeah. And then we get a scene where Lorca is called away to sickbay by Culber. And so he gets into the turbo lift, but the transit to the sickbay is cancelled because it was a trap. It was not actually Culber. It was Mud wanting to get Lorca alone to guide him to what he calls his man cave. <laughs> I love that bit. Yeah, I didn't realize that that very sexist term would exist hundreds of years from now. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe uh, Mud is an aficionado on 2000s terminology. Like Tom Paris loved the uh, 1900s. Or like Ready Player One is with the 1980s. Exactly. Great. <laughs> I love there's a line here where Mud is talking to Lorca. Because Lorca's like, Psh, I'm not going to help you. You're a jerk hole. And uh, Mud, <laughs> he says, like, there, are, there are really so many ways to blow up this ship. It's almost a, des a design flaw. And this is like a total nod to all the times we see Star. Starfleet ships blow up for the weirdest reasons in TV. Yeah, we've seen a lot of ships of the line go down over the years, and not always in honorable ways. And to prove his point, Mud just says, activate self-destruct sequence. Yeah, and so now there's an invisible time counter in the background. Yeah, which is a very strong incentive for Lorca to comply. We cut back to Burnham and Stamets, and Stamets has recruited Michael, telling her about the time loop, because he knows that Tyler and Mud shared a prison cell, and that Tyler might know something that can be useful in this loop. And Samus believes that Burnham will be able to get Tyler to talk about that more easily than he, Stamets, would, because Burnham and Tyler like each other. Yeah, he has apparently figured either... Well, earlier during the incident in the hallway where they crashed, he noticed, like, hey, what's up with you two? <laughs> right. So he knew something was up. And then here he's basically like, yeah, I know there's something up here. <laughs> I mean, you've probably had that experience at some point in your life where you think you're being discreet about your crush and it's obvious to everybody else and it pisses you off because they don't know how they figured it out. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you don't even know. <laughs> <sighs> I hate that. I hate that. I hate when other people know more about me than I do. <laughs> and apparently Stamets, with his connection to the multiverse, is able know, to figure right? this oh. out. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So, he wants to recruit Burnham again in a future loop more easily than he did this time. So he asks her 
for a secret which, when he reveals to her in a future loop, will prove that he knows something he could not possibly know unless she told him, that this loop has happened before. Yeah, and she believes and takes him for his word and whispers something to him in his ear. I thought he was really sweet about this. He says yeah. to her, your secret will be safe with me. She tells him, and he looks at her just so sadly. He says, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like, I asked, it's one of those things where I was actually thinking, like, I want to know, but I don't want to know. Yeah, I thought it would be impactful if we never found out, if that's just something between the two of them. Kind of like the Scott McCloud graphic novel, The Sculptor, where at the end, the two main characters, these love interests, share a secret, and we, the reader, never get to find out. Or at the end of Lost in Translation. I was just going to say, end of Lost in Translation. Right, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. I mean, obviously, when he was on the set filming that scene, he said something to her. No one will ever believe you. <laughs> that is terrible, Bree. Why are you such a bad person? Oh, no, that was a meme from like five years ago on the internet. <laughs> I don't know these things. This is terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, she shares his secret. He says, sorry. And then we go back to Lorca and Mud in the... Do we ha what, what can we call it? The lair? Either Lorca's lair or Lorca's man cave. <laughs> I prefer Lorca's lair. I would not like to reinforce Mud sexism. <laughs> Sounds good. Or this scene is one of the internet's favorite. Why? Because we get a death montage of how many of all the times that Mud killed Lorca. Yeah, like he says to Lorca, do you know how many times I've killed you? And then to answer that question for the viewer's benefit, we see a montage of all the times that Mud has killed Lorca. Yeah, it's a cool cutaway scene where it's just like, it all it's all different times. Like he's done this, but it all streams together. He's like, Shh, he just walks into his ready room and shoots him in the face. Then it turns around, he walks out of the ready room to the bridge and shoots him in the neck. And then, yeah... <laughs> And then he, next time he does it again, he shoots him. In, he just stuns him in the neck. And then next time he does it again, he sits in his chair. Lorca runs at him, and he beams him off into space with a hand wave. Yeah, and then we watch him on the view screen just suffocating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And then it cuts back to the here and now, and he says, I've killed you 53 times. That's how many. And also, <laughs> all these weapons you have in your lair, I don't know what this one does. Let's find out. And then, phew, 54. That kind of reminded me of the TNG episode, The Most Toys, where the bad guy shoots his partner with a gun that he's never fired before. Yeah, that was awful scene. Yeah, and he's an awful character. That was the Varianty Disruptor, wasn't it? Yes, a highly illegal weapon in the Federation. Yes. I would not be surprised if Lorca has one. This is not what was used here, and in fact, the effect was slightly different. But I would not be surprised if elsewhere in his collection is a Varanty Disruptor. You're right, you're right. Then uh, after that, uh, kills Lorca, and then the ship blows up. And that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Wow, this is weird. Seems like we've talked about this before. But no, we couldn't have. No. I'll talk to you next week, Bree. All right, see you later, Ken. Hello, and welcome to Transporter Lock for the seventh episode, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Hi, Bree. Hey, Ken. I... No, okay. Anyway. We're at a party. Burnham is there. The power flickers, as always. And this time, Stamets knows to find them at the party in time. He runs in. He separates Michael from Tilly by saying, Hey, I just saw the hottest guy over there, and he's in a band. So he's playing <laughs> to Tilly being in a musician phase of her life, as opposed to the soldier phase, which you know was previous and next. And then once Stamets is alone with Michael, I really didn't like what happened next. No, he immediately just blurts it out at this party. It's loud, so thankfully no one else can probably hear it. 
He just blurts out to Michael and says, you've never been in love. <laughs> yeah, and we just talked about how we hoped that we would never find out what the secret was. Oh, it's that. Yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> talk about like instant gratification. Yeah, and Stamets had said how he would keep the secret safe. And as you said, he blurted it out at a party. That doesn't seem very safe. It's, it's loud. And you know what? For all we know, he did this like 73 times before uh, it worked. That's true. Maybe he's just getting tired of being discreet. Yeah. So again, he explains to Burnham that she needs to get time alone with Tyler. Tyler comes over and says to dance, but then they're called away. Ash Tyler walks away, but Michael stays behind and talks to Stamets. Again, changing how things we've seen them before. They have a sweet little uh, heart-to-heart as they walk out into the hallway where it's quieter. This fourth loop that we have witnessed is very much about Burnham and Stamets. We don't see Lorca, we don't see Mud, we don't see Saru. It's just the engineer and the mutineer. And it's really sweet. I really liked this loop. Yeah, we get this wonderful moment where she's kind of confused, like, how do relationships how do relationships work? At this point, Stamets talks to her about how he met Culber. Which was super sweet! Yeah, like, basically he was annoyed at him at first. <laughs> Stamets is annoyed at Culber for humming terribly. and uh, But then they sat next to each other, because, and he just talks about how they don't hide anything from each other. And he told her how it is, and that's kind of what brought them together. And he's been at my side ever since. Yeah, Stamets says how I told him how I felt, which was annoyed at his humming, and he told me how he felt, and we like that about each other. Burnham is confused because it sounds like an extremely rude way to meet somebody, but I liked it because it wasn't saccharine, sweet Hollywood love. It was real. Yeah, yeah. I like that. The reason that Burnham didn't get alone time with Tyler at the party is because he asked her to dance and she doesn't know how. So Stamets like, this is the loop where I try to fix that. Now, obviously, he can't teach her to dance because she'll forget. But he says, show me what you're working with. And they start dancing. And that's when they share these intimate secrets. Right. Uh, this, this kind of little moment happened where early on in the conversation. And uh, basically, they're kind of fighting about who's going to lead it. You don't, they don't talk about it. But you can see them kind of fidgeting and who's leading the dance. And Stamets is finally just like, will you let me lead? <laughs> and she's kind of like, oh, shoot, sorry. <laughs> yeah, as such a strong character, she's probably not accustomed to surrendering control like that. Exactly. And eventually, the dance ends. He knows that the ship is about to blow up. He has conveyed that information to her. Neither of them are surprised when it's about to happen. And as they stand there in the hallway, waiting for the fire to engulf them, they face it together, holding hands. Oh, you're right. I thought about that, but I missed that. That was a wonderful scene. I mean, holding hands is, in my opinion, more intimate than dancing with somebody because Uh I'm accustomed to very social dances, like contra dances, where every minute you're holding hands with somebody different. It's just part of the dance. It's part of the ritual. When the dance is over, you let go. And they didn't. Stamets and Burnham stayed holding hands. And I thought that was representative of how closer they are getting as co-workers and as friends. Two people who are starting to share intimate moments together. Sharing secrets breeds intimacy. It is the currency of intimacy. And even though she's forgetting every 30 minutes, he is learning a lot about her, and he doesn't seem repulsed by it. In fact, he is starting to open up himself. Uh-huh. And so I just really liked that little gesture. No, oh, it was very sweet. Yeah. And then the ship blows up. And then the ship blows up. Well, that's it for Star Trek Discovery, I guess. All right. Talk to you next week. Talk to you again.
Hey, it's Transporter Lock Season 1, Episode 7. Hi, Bree. Hey, Ken. Here we are in the <laughs> fifth and penultimate loop of Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, and they are again at the party. Yeah, they're at the party, and we cut away right away to, obviously, the, Michael and Stamets has already had this conversation. We're kind of jumping right after that, and she walks over to T- Ash Tyler and says, let's dance. And she pulls him over, and, say, and she even says, will you lead? Or will you lead, please? He is very much enamored of these actions, but she kind of breaks the mood by talking business and asking him about his time in prison with Harry Mudd. Yeah, she really jumps to that, and he's like, "You're not one, you're not one for a small talk, are you?" And I really like that you put this in the notes because I saw it in the show, but then I forgot. Which is that we see other people dancing around them, including two women. Yeah, that made my heart melt. I was like, "Oh, yay!" Yeah, just these little gestures that represent. The inclusivity of Starfleet is something that really is inspiring about the future. Yes, I love it. Yeah. So anyway, they have a very... he She is trying to have a very business-oriented dance, and he won't have it because once he realizes that time is looping and that nothing matters and nobody will remember anything, he decides to express himself. Yeah, he's kind of like, well, this doesn't matter, and he goes in for the kiss. <laughs> oh, yeah, and she does not push him away, nor does she like punch him, slap him, anything. Nothing. She Basically, it finally happened. And right as it happened, as a kiss, the song in the background says, we'll be together. Subtle. <laughs> Very. <laughs> but then he does get down to business, and he talks about his time with Mud, and he shares what Mud shared with him, which is extensive. Yeah, so like they ignored, they ignored uh, the summons to the bridge this time, by the way. Yeah, she says, stay here and talk to me. We need to know this more importantly than we need to go to the bridge. Yeah, and he starts talking about like, how, uh, he's just, she's like, did he do anything weird? Does he talk about anything like having great plans or what, what could he have done in his past that allows him to do this? And he says like he used, he used to brag about robbing a Betazoid bank. Yeah, one that had incredibly intricate security measures like daily changing DNA patterns, blah, blah, blah. And he realizes, and Tyler realizes, that the only way Mud could have done that is if he basically had infinite chances at doing it. Yeah. And so this is where they determine that even though this technology to make a time loop doesn't exist, there must be some sort of like a, a, a time crystal that was stolen from some fourth dimensional being, and which is yeah. now within Mud's control. He said some technobabble word that put the clues all together. But while he's given this intricate detail of Mud sneaking through the Betazoid bank, knowing everything and, and memorizing security patterns, we actually get a cutaway while he's talking of Mud sneaking around Discovery, avoiding people as they're walking through the hallways. Exactly describing what Ash was just describing. Right. So we're seeing that Mud is doing exactly on Discovery, the same thing he used to do on Betazoid, which Tyler is describing. And then that culminates with Mud making his way all the way to the bridge, only after Lorca and the rest of the bridge crew are bombarded with, no, not solar radiation, classical music. (laughs) They're like, yeah, what's going on? Turn it off. And then he walks on the bridge and immediately beams Lorca to the brig with a hand wave. Oh, it was the brig? Is that where he went? Yeah. Because the last time we saw Mud beam Lorca somewhere, it was into outer space. I didn't catch where he was going this time. At this time, basically, uh, I didn't put up my notes, but Mud, is, he's like kind of getting bored of just killing people, or, or Lorca anyway. And he says, like, even I am getting tired of talking about myself. <laughs> As it does, like, this is some really weird for him to not experience that. It's also impressive that he was able to reprogram the Starfleet computer to basically be a Microsoft Connect. <laughs> We've never seen beam outs occur at, at the wave of a hand. It may have been some tech on his 
person too. We didn't see. Oh, that's possible. Also, did you happen to recognize the classical music that was being played? I don't know enough about classical music to have caught it. I'm sure someone could help us out there. That would be awesome. I'm sure if I had run my Shazam app, it would have recognized it. But I was just curious if there was some significance to the selection of song. That would be interesting to find out. So while he's on the bridge, he reveals one of his new toys, which is a little marble orb of dark matter, which when it is thrown at somebody will cause a most painful death. Yeah, he says he found it in the former Captain's Man Cave, and this is where we actually heard him say oh, it. Oh, that, that's time. right. He got this from Lorca. I forgot about that. Yeah, weird, huh? Like, yeah, so we, so we really don't know what Lorca might have in there. We don't know what else he might have in there. And, yeah. nobody, and nobody else on the bridge seems bothered that Lorca would have this. Well, they're probably too scared for their lives right now. They just saw Lorca beamed away. This man they've never met. Most of them have never met. Actually, none of them at this point have ever met. Uh, it just appears on the bridge, beams him away, and he's threatening them with this purple marble. That's true. They have other things to worry about right now. Yeah. <laughs> Incl- including the communications officer. Oh my god, I love this scene. So he's... Mud's making demands, like, you better help me figure out this shit, blah, blah, blah. And he's sort of taunting everyone with the marble. A person jumps up from his station, is about to tackle Mud. Mud turns around and basically goes, no, not you, random communications officer man. <laughs> A total nod to making fun of people in the background. Who normally are the ones who die first. Yep. And he was about to. But then they get interrupted because Stamets, Burnham, and Tyler all storm onto the bridge, phasers at the ready. They fire at Mud. Once again, he has a force field erected, which Stamets should not have been surprised by. <laughs> and so instead, Mud throws his purple marble of dark matter at Tyler. It collides. It goes right through the force field. Not a problem. And Tyler dies a most painful death. Yeah, he fades away, basically. He's like almost like burned away. Yeah, it, it is not pleasant. And he seems no. entirely aware of it while it's happening. Yeah, but he doesn't get a chance to respond. Like, it didn't look painful on the outside, but I'm sure like whatever he's feeling on the inside was uh, the worst thing ever. Yeah, and he is looking right at Burnham while it happens. Burnham is looking right at him. Their eyes are locked. And as soon as Tyler is gone, Burnham rushes at Mud. And I'm very surprised that Saru is the one who stops her and says, mm-hmm. let's not have any more needless deaths today. Now, Saru, we have seen, does not really have a lot of love for Burnham lately. Maybe they are making amends by her giving him the telescope, etc. But I did not expect him to care if Burnham lived or died. Yeah, but he is like being all defensive mode. His, his threat ganglia, we could not see them out, by the way, the entire episode, but we never actually got to see him close up. Maybe he, maybe his body knew there was no problem. And then Stamets also does something unexpected, which is he reveals himself to Mud. He says, I am the missing component of the spore drive that you are looking for. Look at my arms. Look at these cybernetic implants. It's me. Yeah, basically, it sounds the way he's talking, it sounds like he's just tired of all these loops. And he's like, fine, we're just going to do this. But it's such a dangerous reveal he made because it doesn't benefit anybody in this loop. The only person it benefits is Mud. Well, any of the crew that's still left alive, it benefits. Like, he's hoping. Maybe. Or he can see into the future, and he knows it's going to get worked. Fixed. No. He's not a precog like that, no. Oh, you're... <laughs> he gives himself up, and Mud beams them to engineering. Which leaves the people on the bridge free to do what they will, and apparently the turbo lifts still work, even though Mud has hacked the rest of the computer. So Tilly and Burnham go to scan the Gormagander. Yeah, which is cool to see Tilly in her party outfit still going to work. Right, she didn't have time to change. She just rushed right from the party to the cargo bay. Uh Uh-huh. They're doing little scans, and they find a ship inside the space whale. 
Right. So they had theorized that anything powering Mud's wristwatch with the time loop must be larger. He must be drawing that power to the wristwatch from somewhere else. And they think it's inside the Gormagander. I guess maybe Stamets suggested that to them. I don't know at some point in the loop. But they go there and they find what appears to be a ship inside the Gormagander. Yeah, it almost looks, I mean, it was very vague scam. It almost looks like a Tholian ship, but not quite, because Tholian ships are very angled, like like our wings on Star Fox. Ooh, nice reference. Thank you. <laughs> so you're saying the Gormagander needs to do a barrel roll. <laughs> you remind me of your father, Fox. But anyway. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Slippy. Tholians, remind us where we've seen them before. Tholians, we first saw them on the original series when they were uh, building this wig web this big web around the Enterprise. And then we saw them again on, on Enterprise itself in the Mirror Universe. We actually got to see one on the in the uh, decon chamber of Enterprise as evil Phlox is torturing it. That's right. The Tholian Web was the name of yeah. the episode, I believe. And they are the ones that made the USS Defiant disappear. And we eventually found out that it disappeared into the past and, and into the Mirror Universe. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about that episode, but that is neither here nor there. I know, so much to say there, but whew, maybe in one of our downtimes between the episodes of Discovery. There you go. They find the ship in there, and Michael comes up with a plan, but we're not privy to it as a viewer. But she basically says uh, they need to get Mud to reset the clock once more. But how are we going to do that? Because he's got everything he wants with Discovery. Not everything. <laughs> yeah, they realize that there's not enough time left in this loop, and also there have been too many losses suffered, so they need another shot. We cut to Mud in Captain Lorca's ready room just off the bridge, and the door chimes because he has a visitor, which he is surprised by because he's already sent the Discovery Coronist to his Klingon buyers. As far as he is concerned, he's gotten everything he wants, and he's ready to let the loop expire. Yeah, and in comes Michael Burnham, and they have a little conversation, and... Mud is being all, he's got a flair for the dramatic. He's talking about how the solar winds are my mistress and I follow her wherever. Michael's like, uh, what about Stella? He's like, oh yeah, her. Yeah, this is all for her. And that's when she tells him that what if there was something even more valuable than Discovery? He says there is no such thing. And she says, I killed Takuvma, the Klingon messiah. And he says, that's impossible. I looked at the manifest and you're a nobody. And she says that's because I'm not on the manifest. I'm not crew. I'm a specialist. I am Michael Burnham. I have no combat. I'm just eating her. No, Delta Shield on my ship. That's right. <laughs> and Mud quickly asks the computer to confirm her identity. It confirms, and he says, Oh my God, this is extremely valuable. It's a like, great Scott. Indeed, heavy. <laughs> she's like, uh, Why are you telling me this? This is kind of weird. And she's like, Lieutenant Tyler, he's dead, he says. She goes, not for long, and takes one of the purple marbles on his desks and swallows it. Yeah, whereas Lorca keeps fortune cookies, Mud keeps marbles of dark matter, and she swallows it, and we can actually see it trace down her digestive system into her core, which is a great effect, and it eats her from the inside out. She stands there and takes it, and apparently she is, in the Vulcan way, very good at not showing any emotion, including pain, because she just looks Mud in the eye and dissolves before him yeah he's like oh damn it <laughs> he taps his little thing and poof, ship blows up which is a weird way to end the episode yeah maybe we'll find out what happens next week talk to you then all right see you guys hey it's transporter lock how are you Bree? hey karen i'm doing well
You think our listeners are getting sick of this? <laughs> sick of what? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> However, now we have no time for small talk because we see Mud and Discovery Crew's plans both in action at the same time as they're both doing their separate things, pressing buttons, programming things. And on the bridge, Mud walks on there. And all of a sudden, all the Discovery Bridge crew's there like, hey, welcome. The ship is yours. You can have it. Yeah, we haven't seen the party. We haven't seen the conspiracy. It's all just quick montages leading up to about 20 minutes into the loop, where the entire bridge crew are now in on this. It's not just Burnham, Tyler, and Stamets. Everybody's in on it, and Lorca says, Captain Mud, the chair is yours. And Mud is like, uh, okay. <laughs> and they're like, no, we're cutting our losses. We're going to give you the ship, Michael and Stamets, and... You just really leave the rest of us alone. I don't want to. And Lorca says, like, to try to convince him, he's like, I don't want a repeat of the brand, the ship that he had lost before. Which I thought was a powerful line, because that is not something that Lorca brings up easily, and certainly not something he wants to bring up, because it's a reason that people don't trust him. And yet here mm-hmm. he is. And even though he's saying it to convince Mud, I know that there is some sincerity there as well. He sincerely does not want another Baran. And he knows that if this plan doesn't work, that might be what happens. Yeah, yeah. Mud was suspicious because, as he said, you can't con a con man. But at this point, he's like, I don't see a downside to this situation. So he accepts Lorca's handshake. He's like, all right, I'll take it. Yeah, he sits down on the captain's chair. He tells the computer to send a message to come get the ship. And uh, Mud's like, if you're going to do anything heroic. You've got like a few seconds left before we can't reset the time loop. And nothing happens. And he's like, all right. And then uh, his little risk, magic risk thing uh, flutters away. Yeah, it just dissolves. The ship has re-entered the time stream, as he put it, which means that there will be no more loops. Yeah, and uh, after that, the computer says, hey, the Klingons are here, and they are ready to beam over. Yeah, so at this point, Stamets, Burnham, and Mud go down the turbo lift and are walking to the transporter room, and that's when Stamets and Burnham start talking and saying, you know, you said that the war took Stella away from you, but her daddy's an arms dealer. He's made a lot of money. They would not be hard to find. Yeah, and this like, obviously is not making sense to the crew. It's, uh, at this point, Stamets kind of reveals, like, you know, she's looking for you. Yeah, they reveal that the ship's computer, the information databases, they were not locked out of. So they were able to look up Mud and his relationships and, and any affiliations he has. And they also reveal that Stella and her daddy put a bounty, basically, on Mud's head. So that's when they reveal Mud isn't running to Stella. He's not looking for her. He's not missing her. He's running away from her. Yeah, and then Mud's like, but that information's not going to do you any good. The Klingons are here, don't you remember? Tyler has popped out of a side door, and they've wrested the gun away from Mud, so he is unarmed. But still, the Klingons are on the way, and he says, so what? You haven't cornered me. You're still for sale, and all you've done is renege on your part of the contract. I'm still going to have the Klingons wipe out the entire crew. You've doomed yourselves. And that's when they tell him, like, hey, uh, you didn't lock down the computer. We just told it to pretend to be on your side. Uh, the captain's chair. Yeah, in the captain's chair. Specifically the captain's chair. Because they knew like he was the guy who's going to sit here. Because that's the kind of person Mud is. They walk into the transporter room. I was waiting for one line and one line only at this point. It was from, I think it was I, Mud. I was waiting. And Ken, I'm sorry if this... Wait, are y'all yelling away from the mic? But I was waiting to hear... Hardcore Phantom Mud! 
And did you get it? We did not get it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so for those who don't remember, at the very end of I Mud, which is a TOS episode that had Harry Mud, he is basically sentenced to a planet with, what was it, like 30 or 50 robots designed to act just like Stella? Yeah, he had clones of his wife nagging at him constantly. Yeah, just nagging him and annoying him. And I don't know that we really saw that version of Stella here. Granted, she's much younger, but she seems more pleasant. Yeah, she was all like, happy to see him. And he's like, oh, oh, I was trying to find you, but I had to take care of all these debts. And she's like, knock it off. I know who you are and I love you anyway. And daddy can fix all your problems. Yep. So it seems like basically the Discovery crew are selling mud to Stella, whereas he has always <laughs> been trafficking in humans. Now he is the one being trafficked. And yes. even Stella's daddy says, I have no intention of being in debt to you. What can I do to repay you right here and now? And they say, just keep mud by your daughter's side and out of our way, which I thought was a pretty light sentence for somebody who had just blown up the Discovery and killed its captain multiple times. Well, how are you going to prove that? Right. I mean... <laughs> it seems like he got off light, but the only person who can prove it is Stamets. Or can he improve it? So that's the end of mud. He beams away, and then we just have Burnham's log. She has a log at the end, right? Yeah, she has a log at the end. Well, first, there's a quick little scene where they're at the elevator. Ash and Burnham waiting at the turbo lift. Then both of them reveal that Stamets has said they danced in a previous loop, and they both liked it. And at this point, I heard out you can cut tension with a knife here, because the whole time, Ash is kind of like, yeah, I know you like me. And she's like, <laughs> She almost looked like she was on the verge of tears at the end of this episode. Yeah, yeah. And when they get in the turbo lift, she basically says, like, I need some more time to sort things out. And he's kind of like, yeah, that's cool, but I'm kind of sad we missed our first kiss. Oh, and then we get the closing log. Yeah, she gets uh, this. Uh, she closes out the log just like we started the episode. She closes with it, and she's talking about routine again. And this time, she's kind of like we. While she's talking about routine and whatnot, she you see on camera like both her and Ash coming off the turbo lift for their bridge duty at the same time. A couple times we see this happen routine and she's like but you never know basically who's around the corner kind of thing so be ready for it it's obviously like she's madly in love with this guy <laughs> and then the ship blows up and then the ship blows up see no no <laughs> no all is well what a weird way to end the episode i know no. <laughs> and so that's the end of the episode for real no more loops we got to see six loops that we know that there were at least like 56 but these are the six we saw so i really liked the episode but and most people are like, uh, like, this is my favorite episode. And me, I'm like, kind of feel like I'm watching a rerun. Rerun of what? Well, a few episodes of Star Trek where things repeat, but specifically like cause and effect. And also, yeah, cause and effect. Yeah, that was immediately obvious to me as well. But this is the episode where um, Next Generation, where it starts with the crew playing poker. All of a sudden, uh, this portal opens up and the USS Cheers comes out of... Uh, this time loop, <laughs> and Enterprise runs into it, and we find out that it's a uh, Captain uh, Kelsey Grammer Fraser. I mean, technically, the show starts with the ship blowing up. Yeah, yeah. And this is actually the episode that we talked about last week about how my dad taped it. And I thought he'd missed the first half. Yeah, I know. It's weird how that came up. That was like totally unplanned. I had no idea. It's almost like we're in a time loop. I know. It's almost like we're in a time loop. Ah. Uh, I mean, yes, the trope has been seen in Star Trek. It's been seen more broadly in anything that 
aspires to be like Groundhog Day. It's not necessarily a new phenomenon. There were some new things about it, though, like the fact that Stamets is the only one who knows what's happening, and he's not the main character. It's almost like if Groundhog Day was told from the perspective of anybody except Bill Murray. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I do like that. I mean, I, I like their way they did this. It's just, it didn't feel like completely new to me. And I don't know if there's anything wrong with that because I love time travel. Like, I know time travel is, time travel is very, very done in Star Trek. Like, they do it all the time. And most people are like, oh, I hate time travel episodes. And I love them. I mean, I love them too. One of my favorite Voyager episodes was Shattered in season seven, mm-hmm. where every deck is a different time period. Yeah. Including the future. However, I do like that Discovery waited longer than Voyager to do time travel. Voyager is doing time travel in the very third episode. Discovery at least waited till episode seven. <laughs> Big difference. Oh, you're absolutely right. I remember even when Voyager premiered, like I was thinking to myself, really? Already? They're already doing a spatial anomaly of the week and it's only episode three? Speaking of time travel, a question I have about this episode is how Mud's wristwatch worked. And by which I mean, Stamets said as long as the time loop is not allowed to expire, it will repeat. And we saw Mud multiple times issue the self-destruct command to make the time loop repeat. And so it seems to be that the destruction of the ship is what initiates the loop, because we saw Mud die one time. He didn't have time to punch anything into his wrist, but the ship was already set to destruct, it destructed, and the loop repeated. Yeah, I think there's some stuff we just need to forget or, you know, like just hand wave it. I mean, I wonder what Mud remembered when he woke up from dying, because that was the only time that he died before the ship blew up that we saw. Yeah, I guess we don't know if he actually died, died either. Or died, died, died. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's so many ways to die in space. What did he say, like 847? I don't remember that. In this episode, he cited a specific number of ways there are to die in death. (laughs) And he said that his dark matter orb was the most painful of oh, all. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's seen, that's seen, that's seen. Yes. Yeah, there is a finite number of ways to die in space, <laughs> which is weird. Like, does that include like having a piano drop on you in the holodeck? Well, that's not in space, then. Are there ICD ten codes for this? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, Tyler didn't die in space; he died on the bridge. Yeah. I don't know. What What else do you think about this episode? Kind of brought up other things, like the the uh, this is like light sentence, but he's left on a planet with up to five hundred copies of uh, his ex wife. I mentioned cause and effect, and I love seeing what crews do when they're off time. Uh, Enterprise did this really well. Uh, there's there was moments on both or like all the other series, but a lot of them felt forced or fake, and it was kind of cool to see. I, I like seeing like we're gonna go see the movies. We're gonna listen to classic rock <laughs> classic classic ancient rock uh, <laughs> things like that i just like seeing people being people and it didn't feel forced i wish i could have heard some music that wasn't retro like i would like to know what actual future music sounds like because on enterprise as you said we saw their downtime but they were watching old movies on voyager <laughs> they'd play in the holodeck but again it was old movies like captain proton yeah, they're watching stuff that's uh, either made by themselves or out of copyright, so they can actually show it. They can actually show it on TV. <laughs> and on TNG, they played poker. So it's all yeah. these things that we find very relatable. And as I mentioned, that party reminded me very much of college, the one that we saw on Discovery. So I'd like to know, other than like weird martial arts that Riker plays with his dad, what is future entertainment like? 
Yeah, and well, I've even mentioned it uh, with one of my friends who used to do a Voyager podcast where I want to see their civilian clothes. And we actually got to see that here. People wearing civilian clothes on a starship. Because unlike Voyager and other shows, like unless they're in their pajamas, they're almost always wearing their uniform. Or disco shirts, which you yeah. yourself can now buy from the Star Trek merchandise <laughs> store. You can, you can. If you have a lot of money. <laughs> I think that might be the only reason they put it in there. Marketing, yeah. <laughs> As NMR just told us on Twitter... If the front of the shirt says disco, the back of the shirt has to say very. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. Because that way it says discovery, but it's very disco. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. Somebody should do that. One internet point for you, Jess. Yay. Any other observations about this episode? It's interesting. There's a lot of character building, but unfortunately, a lot of it was reset for the characters. That's true. I mean, we got to learn things about the characters, like... Stamets is the only one that knows that Burnham has never fallen in love, and who knows if he revealed it in the final loop. We presume he did, that's how he convinced her, but this might be Stamets knowing a lot about Burnham, and she not realizing he knows it. Like, how she dances. Yeah, yeah. I really liked this episode. I thought it was one of the most Star Trek episodes Discovery has done to date, I mean, especially with the first two episodes, the sort of the prequel episodes being kind of dark and starting with a war, we've had some good amounts of humor in the show since then to balance that out. I felt like this was the most humorous episode. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of times where I was laughing at, yeah. out loud. I also want to talk about Harry Mudd's character. I have previously characterized him as more of a nuisance, and here, as you said, we really saw him go off the deep end and start killing people. There is a Variety article where Rain Wilson, the actor who plays Harry Mudd, talked about his character, and I really like a couple of the things he says, which I'll quote. He says, I used to play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons as a kid, and you choose your alignment in that for your character. You can be lawful good or chaotic evil. Harry Mudd is chaotic neutral. Uh, yes, I could totally see that. He is in it for himself, and he doesn't care who's in charge as long as he's cool. Yeah, he's completely unpredictable. And then at the end of the article... Wilson says, I think Harry Mudd is a lot like Donald Trump. Ah. He follows the rules when it works for him, and he'll bend the rules when it suits him. <laughs> uh, remain Klingon. Remain Klingon. So that is it for the Season 1, Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which is a quote from the Iliad by Homer, and I believe it's not the first time a title has been derived from that book. A couple of other things we want to say outside the bounds of this episode just like how Samus exists outside the normal time stream, which I think is super convenient. It makes him like a Guinan for this show. <laughs> anyway, some people have said on Twitter that they really wish they could see more of Captain Georgiou. And one of our readers, TCV, who left us a great iTunes review that we previously read, emailed us to talk about a book he just read, Star Trek Discovery Desperate Hours by David Mack. TCV said about this book, I just finished the first Discovery book. And while everyone knows that books aren't canon... This one fills in a lot of backstory. What's more, since it released right at the show's debut, it's likely to be correct for most things since the author had advanced knowledge of the show. I'd go so far as to say that the book helps you enjoy the show more. Fascinating. Yeah, so Desperate Hours is set while Burnham is on the Shenzhou in those seven years, and that seems like if that's the era you want to know more about, this is a good opportunity to read about it. There'll be a link in the show notes. Maybe I'll do that on my, way, on my travels this weekend. That's right, you're going to California for BlizzCon, and I'm going to New York City for GamerX. 
Yeah, so sorry if next week's episode is a couple days behind. Right, we will get back on track. And also, as we close, I want to thank another listener of ours, Michael, for writing in and saying that our outro music was too loud. We fixed that in last week's episode, so now you can hear whatever last closing remarks we might have to share. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Until next time. See ya. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 1, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Hi, Bree. No, no, Ken, we're done, we're done, we're done. <laughs> and then the podcast blew up. Actually, you should say it like that, yeah. Uh, yes, and then the podcast blew up. Oh. <laughs> oh right. my god. Okay. Uh. <laughs> you alright there? Yeah, it just cracked me up. I didn't expect it. Ah, I always expect the unexpected. <laughs> alright, stopping recording? Yeah, I did.